Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you here today. Um, You can see already uh, in being here today that through the change of the colors in this place that we have moved into a new season of the year for us as Christians. Um, we, We should be funny and stand out in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that is is the way that we keep time, that we actually keep our time. We keep our calendars differently. Um, we have a, a calendar that we often use around here. Mark, if you could bring that up for me. I'm not sure if this clicker is working. There we go. Um, you can see we, we began the year um, here um, in Advent, which is all about the anticipation of Jesus the King. Uh, and then we moved into Christmas, which is all about the incarnation of Jesus the King. And we focused on those themes. And then we moved to Epiphany, which is all about the revelation of Jesus, how he reveals the kingdom of God through his life and his ministry. Um, In Ash Wednesday, and now today, we begin this new season of Lent in which we are focusing on the crucifixion of Jesus. And all of these seasons help us embody the story of Jesus. And remember that it is not the calendar and the happenings of the world around us that most define our lives, but it is the story of Jesus in his reign that most defines who we are as the people of God. So um, we are in this season of Lent going through uh, the gospel of Luke together. And we're calling this the revolution of the king because we see that um, as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, he is causing a revolution. He is uh, bringing the high and lofty of the world down, and he is taking the low and, and impoverished of the world and lifting them high. And we will see that today in the story that we're looking at. So let's pray as we go to God's word. Father, thank you for this story uh, that Luke has recorded for us and given to us, and we pray that it would not just be a dead word, but a living word for us today, that your spirit would, who, the same spirit who, who inspired Luke to write these words would now inspire me and all of us to not just understand them, but to take them to heart, to be changed by them, and to, and to respond with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read together Luke 18. Beginning at verse 18, this is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you in love. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, okay, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then could be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. You know, sometimes in certain circumstances, it can actually be a really good thing to lose hope. To lose hope. I read an article uh, about a little girl who, after watching one of the Harry Potter films, decided that she too 
wanted to fly on a broom. I mean, and who doesn't, right? I mean, Quidditch, <laughs> so awesome. I want to do it too. But she actually tried. And so she got up and she took this broom and she jumped and she fell and she broke her wrist. And fortunately, um, I mean, unfortunately, she was hurt. But fortunately, she attempted this from her kitchen countertop um, rather than the top of her house or a tree outside. And so if all goes as it should, she will have completely lost hope in her ability to fly. And she will never do it again. So sometimes, you see, it is a good thing to lose hope. If you are losing hope in those things that can hurt you, that can cause you injury, that can harm you, and ultimately bring destruction or something worse, sometimes it is a good thing to lose hope. And what we see in this story, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is gently, lovingly, yet powerfully pushing this young man to lose hope. To lose hope in those things that are hurting him, to lose hope in those things that are causing him destruction and that indeed are cutting him off from the very life of God. Jesus is calling him and frankly calling, calling you and me to lose hope in the things that are hurting us. So let's just look at this story together. It's, it's actually a really simple story. It has kind of three simple parts. Let's just walk through it together. First, we see the challenge that Jesus gives and then we'll see the comfort and then we'll see the promise at the end. So let's just look at these three parts. Okay, first the challenge. Let's set the stage, okay? A young man comes up to Jesus. We know that he's often called the rich young ruler. We know he's young from the book of Matthew. We know he's rich because of verse 23, and he's a ruler, which meant that he was kind of a lay leader in the local synagogue. And what's clear is this guy has everything. He is a winner. He's a winner at life, right? He, I mean, he's been to the best schools. He has the right degrees. He lives in the right neighborhoods. He has the right pedigree. Uh, he's 28. He's already made his first million. He's on his way to partner. I mean, this guy is tops. And on top of that, he's like very religious. He's, a, he's already been elected as a ruler in the local synagogue. He uh, is clearly very, um, he, he probably has his kids baptized. He comes to church every week. He's held high esteem. I mean, this guy is the total package. If we had nominations for elder, you would nominate this guy. He's the total package. And yet, he feels that he's missing something. And so he comes to Jesus And he asked very earnestly, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to notice that even in the way this young man asked the question, he is clearly a winner who wants to keep on winning. What must I do? I mean, he can't even conceive of salvation except through the lens of personal striving and more winning. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Because that's the way winners think, right? And now Jesus is on him. And so he decides to mess with him a little bit. He says... Verse 19, why do you call me good? Jesus knows that this young man really just sees Jesus as a good rabbi from whom he wants to seek some advice about how to be good. So Jesus decides to mess around with him. And he begins to name some arbitrary commands from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You know, do not commit adultery, do not murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and father. Notice that Jesus omits from his list any of the first four commandments of God, which have to do with your relationship with God. And he only names commandments from the second half of the Decalogue, which are all about your social relationships. And these commands are actually fairly observable, fairly quantifiable. You could actually try really hard to keep them and actually trick yourself into believing that you were. And this guy just falls right into Jesus' trap. He interrupts Jesus. He says, oh, yes, Jesus, I know those commands. In fact, I have done those ever since I was a little kid. He's basically saying, come on, dude, give me something more grown up. Don't you have something more serious for a serious guy like me? I'm a winner. 
Jesus says, okay, young man, there's just one more thing then. One more teensy, eensy little thing that I ask of you. Go. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. What is Jesus doing? Is Jesus saying that you have to give everything away and sell everything you have to go to heaven? I hope not. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I know that you hope that. I hope that I don't say that to you, right? Some of you are sweating. Here's, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus in this, I mean, Jesus is brilliant, obviously. He's the second person in the Trinity. But in this amazingly brilliant way, he is showing this man, he is exposing this man with this challenge, saying to him that though you may have kept many commands of the law, you have broken the most important one. Here's a Bible quiz. What, what is the first of the Ten Commandments? Do you know? Love God with all your heart and do not have any gods before me. And what he is showing to this young man is that though he may have kept nearly all the commands, he has broken the command of idolatry. That he has named, in a single sentence, he has named the idol in this young man's life. He has exposed that for him his wealth and his money has become for him his God, so much so that when Jesus asks him to put it all on the table, he can't do it. He can't do it. He doesn't worship God. And so we see, friends, that idols, the Bible defines idols as anything in your life that becomes a substitute for God. Anything that you use to get value from, worth from, security, significance, health, happiness, anything that you use instead of God to get the things that your life needs. I think a good definition of an idol is your functional trust. And I say functional trust as distinct from your stated trust, because I think if I ask many of you who are Christians here today, what is your trust? Who do you trust in? What is your savior? You'd say, oh, Jesus, God alone. Okay, that's cool. But there's a difference between your stated trust and your actual functional trust, what you daily depend on for the security and the significance that you need. So I might say my stated trust is God and Jesus Christ. But when, as happened to me a few years ago, I you know, encounter some personal and professional failure, and I'm not just disappointed, but my whole life bottoms out, that is a sign that God was not my actual trust, but that my personal success was. Like if you say, oh, Jesus is my savior, but then one of your kids grows up and is a total failure or takes a path that you never hoped he would and you find your whole life begins to unravel, that is a sign that Jesus is not actually your trust, that even your own children's success might be. So you see, Jesus, with a simple sentence, Jesus is exposing this young man, saying your functional trust, your true God is is. Is, is money, and that you have broken the fundamental command of God to love him more than anything. A lot of us here are like this young man. I am like this young man. A lot of, I mean, look at us. Look at us. You are so nice looking. You've come to church on a Sunday morning when you could be sleeping. Very few of us are openly licentious and rebellious and immoral. We are, many of us are rule followers. I think a high percentage, I have a theory that a high percentage of people at third are firstborn children. I, I, I am. You know, we are like this young man and Jesus is pulling the curtain back on me. He's pulling the curtain back on you and he's saying, look, you might have no sins on your list whatsoever and still you are the greatest lawbreaker. You are an idolater in the heart. And so he's asking you, I think if Jesus were standing before us, he would say, 
He would name something. What is it for you? What would he name? For many of us, it is our money. In fact, I think it's very hard to live as a 21st century American and not succumb to the idol of mammon. I remember a a guy, a Bible-believing Orthodox Christian saying to me that the 2008 financial crisis was the greatest gift that God ever gave him because it exposed what was true all along that he never cared to admit that his money was the security and the substance of his life, and he didn't know it till it was threatened. So what is it for you? What do you love more than you love God? Look at what you envy. Who do you envy? What do you want? What do you find yourself anxious about, stressing over, ruminating about? Where does your mind go in the quiet, dark moments of the night? For many of us, I see lots of you are young parents like myself, and I was thinking about the fact this week that often what we want for our children exposes our idols. I mean, we say, we sing, oh yeah, Jesus is my savior, but then when we're investing so much in our children's security and success and personal happiness and education and career development and social and personal flourishing, they're actually exposing what we most want. You see what I mean? This is the great challenge that Jesus is pulling back the curtain on every one of us and saying, yeah, you look squeaky clean, but at the heart, you are an idolater. That's painful. But there is a comfort. Do not fear. There is a comfort here. And, and so let's keep looking at the story. This young man is really sad. And see, he never imagined that Jesus would say such a thing. And so verse 23 Jesus says, says this, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? And everyone is stupefied. I mean, at that time, just like often in some Christian circles today, wealth is somehow associated with God's blessing. And so here's this guy. They're like, dude, Jesus, if this guy who we think should be on your board of directors, I mean, he's clearly a total package. If you're saying that this guy... Even this guy cannot get into your kingdom. Then what hope does anyone have? Who then can be saved? And that's exactly where Jesus wants them. He wants them at the place of despair. He wants them to lose hope in the self-salvation project. This question that this man asks, what must I do to be saved, is the great question of religion. It is at the heart of all of them. What must I do to get eternal life? And religion has many answers. You know, you must keep the law. You must attain higher levels of spiritual enlightenment. You must go to church. You must worship more, be a better person, accomplish more. This whole concept is built around this idea that salvation is achieved by accomplishing duties and obeying commands. What must I do to be saved? I mean, to use a really simple illustration, if your life... We're a glass. Religion and morality essentially instructs you that you need to come to God with your glass full. You better come with your glass full. And so we try to make it full. So we say, you know, I've gotten my kids baptized. I spend a lot of time praying. I read my Bible every day. I go to church. I'm a pretty good person. I'm at least better than that guy at work. You know, we do, and so we do all of these things, and we come, and then we come to God, and we say, look how full I am. This is what this young man is doing with Jesus. Look at all the commands I have kept. Look how full I am, Jesus. And Jesus is, in this single phrase, Jesus shockingly turns this whole system of achievement-based religion on its head and shows this man that his 
moral and religious achievements count for nothing and that the only thing that he needs is the one thing that he doesn't have, and that is nothing. Did you see this story? If you have your Bibles, you see the story that comes right before this one? It's a story of Jesus welcoming the little children to himself. And he says that these little children who have nothing have everything that they need to come into the kingdom. But then he tells this young man who has everything that he's missing the one thing he needs to get into the kingdom, which is nothing. Are you following me? So, so what he's saying is you need nothing if you want to get everything. Well, having everything will get you nothing. This is the revolution of Jesus. This is how his kingdom works. He wants us to get to the point of losing hope in our self-salvation project, to see that we are such lawbreakers and such constant idolaters that we can truly do nothing to save ourselves, that we actually get to the point where we say like the disciples, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, all things are possible with God through my grace. So religion says, are you full enough? Are you full enough? And Jesus says, are you empty enough? Are you empty enough to receive my grace? Have you emptied yourself so that you're not so full of yourself and your deeds and your accomplishments that there's nothing left for my grace? Are you emptied yourself so that you are ready to receive all of the grace of Jesus that he wants to pour in you? Are you empty enough to receive my grace? That is what Jesus is pushing this young man to see, and he just cannot see it. And that is what he is pushing each one of us to do today. And I want us to see this because this is especially important because we here are among the world's richest people. And I mean that literally. We are among the world's richest people. And Jesus is always very, very hard on rich people. And it's not because he doesn't love them. Jesus loves rich people. But he's hard on the rich because there is nothing like wealth to have a special way of blinding us to our helplessness and need. Wealth gives you the delusion of security. It gives you the delusion of self-satisfaction. It actually deludes you into thinking that you actually can get along with life without God. And this is a serious warning. This is why the people who are rich and powerful and who have much in the world always misunderstand the message of Jesus and those pimps and prostitutes and beggars and lepers and scum of the earth of the world run to Jesus because they have embraced their emptiness. Y'all, we're rich and we're in danger. And so I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, Jesus is pleading with you. Can you name, can you say like the hymn writer said, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for grace. Helpless come to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain fly. Savior, wash me or I die. Have you ever said that? Have you ever come to terms with your emptiness? I don't care how conservative and religious and moral you are. If you have not named that emptiness and been cried out to God for him to pour his fullness through Jesus into your life, then you are not in the kingdom. Sorry to say it so bluntly, but you're not. Because the pathway into the kingdom, as we see, is to name your emptiness before God so that you are finally ready to be filled with the grace that he wants to give you through Jesus. And that's the comfort. This young man wants to achieve, and Jesus wants him to receive. He wants to come with his fullness. Jesus wants us to come with our emptiness. Has that happened for you? There's one last thing at the end. There's a final promise at the end. Because Peter, as Peter often does, freaks out. He says, Jesus, come on. Jesus sees this guy who's like tops, 
get turned away, and so he's freaking out. He's like, Jesus, what about us? What about us? We've left everything. If, if human efforts mean, of, mean nothing to you, then what about us? What, does anything that we have done and given up for you mean anything? He's looking for affirmation, and Jesus says to him in verse 29, oh yes, my friend, it is worth far more than you ever imagined. No one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or parents or children or, king, or anything for the kingdom will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus on the one hand, is affirming the call to discipleship. And I want, I want us to not miss that point, friends, that Jesus' call is often severe. He is asking you to sever allegiances with anything that is competing with your allegiance to him. The things that he names in verse 29, and these are big things, right? Mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters. I mean, those aren't, this is not like, giving up chocolate for Lent. I mean, this is big stuff. I don't know anyone who said, I'm giving up my house or my mother for Lent, right? I mean, this is, these are sizable, significant things. Jesus is using very colorful language to say, no matter how precious something is to you, no matter how prized something is to you, I'm calling you to either demote it or lose it if it competes with your allegiance to me. And I don't want to sugarcoat Jesus for y'all. I don't want you to say that Jesus is, you know, will never ask anything from you, will never make severe demands, might not ask you to give everything away or significant amounts away or bring, impinge your lifestyle in some, I am not going to color code Jesus in his American way and make him seem less severe than he often is because he is. But here's the thing. He never asks, never demands without a promise. And that is the promise you see. He says, you're going to get back a hundred times as much. He promises reward. He's saying, I'm not asking you to sacrifice, Peter. Young man, I'm not asking you to give up anything. That you, I'm just asking you to give up what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose. I'm asking you to give up what is fake, to gain what is real. Imagine if you were dying of a terminal disease, and your doctor said, bad news, you're going to die. Good news, there's a 100% positive cure, but it's extremely expensive and it's going to cost you everything you have. What would you do? you say, ow, I just can't give up that wedding, China. I'd choose death. <laughs> no! You'd be like, I don't need the wedding, China. In fact, here's everything. I put everything on the table because life is worth it. And that's what Jesus is offering to this young man that he's missing. Yes, Jesus is making severe demands. But one, he's only asking him to lose what's hurting him. And two, he is offering him more than anything he already has. He is offering him his very self. If only this young man could see Jesus. If only he could see that Jesus is literally on the road to the cross to die for him. If only, G if only this young man could see, as Paul says, the, the riches and how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Christ. If only this young man could see the riches of the kingdom that Jesus is offering to him. If, if this young man saw that, he'd be like, I don't care about that, China. All in for you, Jesus. Drop it. Walk. And friends, do you see that Jesus never asks anything of you without promising you infinitely more? than anything that you could ever imagine. Jesus is the rich young ruler. Do you see that? He's the true rich young ruler. He, he, he's, he's young, he's 33. He's rich, second person trinity. Pretty sure that's richer than you. And he's a ruler. I mean, Paul says all things were created in him and through him. That's pretty much everything. And yet this rich young ruler, what does he do? He divests himself radically. He gives everything away. The rich Christ became poor so that we poor sinners might become rich. He gives everything to the poor and that poor is you. Jesus 
gave everything to make you his treasure. And now he asks some things of you to make you him your treasure. So he's not asking anything of you that he's already done for you. You see that? So, so what do we see here in this amazing passage? We see the challenge of Jesus that, yes, he exposes our idols, but the comfort is that once we get to that place of exposure, he's ready to give us his grace, and then his promise is that anything that we have to lose for him is given back an infinite amount through him. So friends, will you lose hope today? Will you lose hope in your self-salvation project? Will you lose hope in your own goodness Will you lose hope in your religious and moral uh, performance? Will you lose hope in your money? Will you lose hope in your power? Will you lose hope in your success? Will you lose hope in your, in, in your uh, dreams and ambitions for your own life that will never actually get you the longings and the fulfillment that you crave? Will you lose hope in those things and put all of your hope in the rich young ruler, in Jesus Christ? Because in getting him, you get everything. That is an amazing offer, one that is offered to you at this table And I think it's an offer you can't refuse. I hope you receive it. Let's pray. Thank you, O Jesus Christ, that you, the rich young ruler, uh, left everything behind to give us all. And I pray um, that we would see ourselves as empty-handed today and that we would come to the table ready to be filled. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.